Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author James Rollins. James is the number one New York Times bestselling author of international thrillers, translated into more than 40 languages, with more than 20 million copies sold. The New York Times says Rollins is what you might wind up with if you tossed Michael Crichton and Dan Brown into a particle accelerator together. And NPR calls his work adventurous and enormously engrossing. Rollins unveils unseen worlds, scientific breakthroughs, and historical secrets, and does it all at breakneck speed and with stunning suspense. A practicing veterinarian, Rollins has pursued scuba, spelunking, and other adventures around the world, and currently lives and writes in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, James Rollins. Thanks. Thanks, David. I appreciate you having me on your show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I know uh, I've been talking with, uh, with Danielle a little bit probably for the past month or so, trying to get everything figured out and so forth. And actually just finished uh, the last Odyssey up yesterday. So it's pretty great timing. <laughs> great. I appreciate the support. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, just kind of first off, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, tell me about growing up, uh, I guess going through school and kind of how you got into writing. Well, as a roundabout way, uh, you know, my professional study was in veterinary medicine. I uh, was a vet- practicing veterinarian for 15 years. Uh, that was my career track since I was in third grade. You know, I got that assignment in third grade that you sometimes get in elementary school, you know, go home, write a little essay about what you want to be when you grow up. And I remember it was a point of moral dilemma for the third grade version of myself. And we're sitting there, blank shade of paper in front of me at my desk going, hmm, I know I want to be a veterinarian. Only problem, I don't know how to spell it. So I thought I could put placement, fireman, fill out that single play. But I did the one thing that all third graders hate to do. I actually uh, got the dictionary out and looked it up. That determined third grade to be a vet. Because uh, that was my, you know, I love animals. I love medicine. I love science. You know, that's this part of my brain, the left part of my brain that, that loves all that stuff. But I also have a right side of my brain that's a little more twisted, a little weirder. I was always the one sort of terrorizing my younger brothers and sisters with stories. And I was an avid reader, which is like throwing gasoline on that side of my brain. So it's been a little crazy. Uh, and, you know, I thought, what do I really want to do as a living? I thought, you, you know, you do this, this, and this, and you can fail horribly as a writer. Or you can do this, this, and this, and, you know, have a successful veterinary career. So I, I followed that second path. But I made the mistake of continuing to read, uh, which uh, it's like throwing gasoline on that, that twisted side of my brain. And I knew at one point I would like to try writing but never seemed to have the time or, or, to, to, or thought I didn't have the time to write. And then I had a little crack in time to uh, go ahead and, you know, I, my, my clinic was in sort of a bedroom community. Mm-hmm. Uh, very busy in the morning, very busy at night, but I had a break in between. And I decided that I had like a three-hour lunch break. And I didn't need three hours as a lunch break. So I decided, well, I have this extra free time rather than going home since uh, and have to come right back. I thought I'll just stay at the clinic and write. And I kept qualifying that a little bit. I first said, I'm going to write three pages a day. I thought, no, I'm going to do three double space pages a day, which is basically a page and a half. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do it every day. I'm going to do five out of seven days of the week. But then I found that, and I think all writers have to do this, they found that uh, balance in life between you know, writing and trying to make sure that you get that, uh, you get your uh, daily paycheck established. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just sort of worked on that and over, it took me about four years of doing that before I finally saw, lucked out and saw my first novel get published and then another novel got published. And 
Then slowly my clients became suspicious something was going on, most because of the, the posters in the lobby, you know, get your cat spay, get a free book. Right. <laughs> and uh, so questions began to arise across that exam table. Dr. Jim, you know, you've got this successful veterinary hospital. What's this deal with writing? What's your long-term goals with this? What are your plans in life? And I thought, yeah. People are awful nosy for somebody just draining your dog's anal glands, but I will try to answer that as best I can. And I said, well, for 15 years, writing was my paycheck and writing was just a hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, so wouldn't it be cool down the line to flip that around and have writing be my paycheck and veterinary medicine be my hobby? And so eventually I sort of got to that point. Uh, I sort of weaned myself off the clinic from I sold my clinic to a corporate group of state employed there, went from full time to part time to weekends and then finally stepped away fully. Uh, so I still do some volunteer work. I still, uh, you know, do some spaying and neutering. Uh, and uh, so I achieved that habit. Basically, I, I right now for my living and I just do my veterinary medicine as a hobby. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was looking at your Wikipedia page uh, and I think you had done an interview, this was several years ago, but you said that uh, you, you now once a week you spend eight hours spaying and neutering trapped feral cats for the Sacramento Council of Cats. And all you do with your veterinary degree now is remove genitalia. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hobby. You know, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> I gotcha. So um, who would you say, I guess, are, are your biggest maybe writing influences? Um, and like kind of who did you read a lot growing up? You know, I, I read avidly. Uh, across a, a wide gamut of different genres. I, I was never so pigeonholed in just reading one thing. I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I love horror. Uh, I love thrillers. Uh, it wasn't so much into literary fiction of that sort. It was mostly just the genre type of stuff. Uh, but, you know, probably one of the biggest influences is not a, a hard thing to figure out. It's Michael Crichton. Mm -hmm. uh, was a big influence of mine. And also Clive Cussler, which unfortunately we lost Clive Cussler. Uh, <laughs> A little while ago, yeah. um, he was one of the first authors to ever give me a blurb. So uh, you know, Clive wrote sort of these historical mysteries, advent, you know, that builds into big adventures in modern times, and that's something that you know those fingerprints are all over what I do today. Yeah. And you know, Clive was a great guy. You know, he was uh, always willing to help a young author whether with a blurb or, or any type of support. Uh, so tragic to hear that he passed away. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. No, my my father in law is a big fan of Custler, and uh, I think I actually ended up, I think I guess, tell, letting him know that Custler had passed. And yeah, that was just a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. You know, you 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 think the next year is going to be better, and then everybody's like looking at, can we go back to twenty nineteen? Like at this point in time, just with all the craziness that's going on right now, it's it's crazy right now. I mean, basically, uh, my tour is in uh, has been dismantled, and we're trying to to re. Uh, you know, re reanimated in some digital form, uh, yeah. doing Facebook live events and getting books signed where I can. Uh, but it's a, it's an interesting paradigm that we're in right now. And some, you know, the publishing world struggling. Uh, I just prepared a post on Facebook about uh, ways to help out independent bookstores by there's some links of some sites where you can order books where a part of the, uh, the price of the book goes straight back to the pockets of independent bookstores that are trying to struggle to survive right now. Wow. Yeah, I know, uh, like Libro.fm, I know they're doing That's a big kind of push right now. Yeah. Bookstore.com, bookstore.org, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, they're doing a big thing about, like, uh, I think if you, like, gift a membership, I think they give you, like, an extra credit or something. Like, they're just trying to do anything and everything they can. And, uh, yeah, it's like my wife and I were talking earlier because we've got some local restaurants that, you know, are kind of doing curbside service and stuff like that because they're closing pretty much every indoor uh, restaurant and just doing drive-throughs, but 
we're like, okay, so where can we help out around town since, you know, we, we know these people are having to let their employees off for who knows how many weeks and just trying to kind of keep everybody afloat. Cause luckily she's a teacher, so she's still getting paid through this. And then I'm able to work remotely. So I'm like, okay, where are we going to be able to help you know, people that don't have that opportunity? So yeah, it, it is a, uh, you know, we've never faced anything like this before. They're talking about, you know, how, you know, March Madness uh, was canceled for the first time ever. And and this was, you know, it hasn't been done since 1926. You know, that we're facing a, you know, a challenge that uh, has never been seen before. So no one is quite sure. Everybody's a little bit confused on how to function and, yeah. and how to balance everything that's going on. And uh, I just, you know, my heart goes out to those people that are, are you know, I, I'm fine in regards to my financial situation. and But I, you know, just how can we help out other people that are going to be facing you know, tremendous hardship because of this. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so as far as when, when you're finding time to write, which I know you're a full-time writer now, where do you typically find yourself writing? Do you have like a home office that you write in? Do you like to go out and about and write? I, I mostly write in my office, but I, I no means uh, tied down to that. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I, when I was first writing, it was during cracks in time at my veterinary office. So, you know, I was constantly being interrupted by, uh, you know, phone calls and receptions asking questions or dogs, you know, barking, cats meowing. Uh, so I'm used to writing a, that bit of a chaos. And I almost enjoy having a little background noise. Uh, if it's too quiet, I don't like that. Uh, I have to have you know, a little bit of chaos around me, I think, to, to write well. Mm-hmm. I think it helps me just to focus by tuning everything else out and focusing on the writing. Gotcha. Um, so tell me a little about your writing process. I'm sure it's changed over the course of, you know, 15 novels and, you know, X amount of years that you've been writing, but do you, uh, do you plot everything out? Do you write outlines? Do you have to have a big whiteboard where you <laughs> write down certain sections and you decide how to put it all together? You know, uh, a couple of things. I remember I mentioned that how I was uh, writing three double space pages a day mm-hmm while I was actively uh, working full-time as a vet, and I thought if I ever get rid of the day job, I'll be much more productive, and I am. I produce five double-space pages a day. I found that's my limit. I, I sort of hit a wall after about five double-space pages. It took me about an hour for me to write one double-space page, so you know, five pages is about five hours of work. Yeah. And the rest of the day, then, is, is research, calling people, the business side of writing. But that's pretty much my structure for the day mm-hmm. in regards to the bigger question about plotting versus uh, outlining and how that's actually done is that uh, I've, I've tried both ways. I've tried just, you know, totally writing, you know, from the seat of my pants with no expectation of where the story is going. And I've also, you know, done detailed outlines and written stories based on that. And I don't like either of them. Uh, I found that uh, I don't like to be too detailed on my outline because then I get bored with the story. If I know every nook and cranny of that story, uh, I'm just, I get bored with it. I just don't want to write it. And if I don't have any uh, safety net of at least some type of skeletal outline, I get a little nervous of just writing without knowing where the story's going, especially as my stories are oftentimes uh, very plot driven. You know, I have to make sure that when I'm juggling these balls, they land just where I need them to land. And that's hard to do just writing, uh, you know, freehand, so to speak. Right. So basically I, I generally, I'll, I'll research a novel for 90 days, and I, I, I've learned from past experience that if I, if I don't limit it to 90 days, I will keep researching, thinking I'm writing, but by that point, I'm just playing. But on the 91st day, I actually have to start putting words on paper. Um, and during that 90 days, I'll also work out that skeletal outline. I'll know the beginning. I'll know the ending. 
Because I think for me to, you know, to build a roller coaster, I need to know where that roller coaster lands at the end. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to send my characters and my readers spinning off into space. So I know the beginning, I know the end, I'll know three or four uh, tent poles that are going to hold up the story. But I don't necessarily know how A connects to B connects to C. To me, one of the joys of writing is that discovery, is of not knowing exactly how the story is going. It allows me the flexibility to have the, the story mutate a bit, change a bit, twist in ways I wasn't expecting or could have any in my imagination pre, uh, pre-outlined out. Um, and, uh, but I, need, I do need to know where I'm going. So those tent poles give me some guidance on where I need to get to so that I land at the right spot at the end. So uh, as far as your research goes, is it mostly from books? Is it online resources? Do you travel to these locations that you write the books in? Or is it, I guess, a mix of all of them? It's definitely a mix of all of them. Um, My first 90 days of research where I'm doing the big researching, that is the time I will, I will, you know, dig deep into articles and and books are great. And I definitely have two or three Bibles that I'll mention usually at the end of my novel where I have a what's true, what's not section, uh, list some of the, the books I use to build that novel. But, uh, you know, books, oftentimes they're way out of date. Um, even magazine articles, oftentimes they're, you know, three to six months out of date. So then I do need to lean on the internet to find out, you know, what's as current as I can. I try to back up, but to make sure that what's on the internet is, is not just something out of somebody's imagination, but actually real. Um, and then I love to interview people. Uh, I always describe myself as a bit of a lazy researcher and that I'd rather have somebody tell me something than for me to look it up. So I love, you know, I've got a you know, circle of, of people in the military, a uh, circle of people in, in at the Smithsonian that are willing to answer questions, whether it's historical or scientific. So I always lean on them. If they don't know the answer, they'll refer me to somebody. So within a matter of, you know, half a day, I can get a lot of information by just making a few calls. Uh, or they'll refer me to you know information that's more current and accurate. Um, so that's a part of it. Traveling, it's actually very rare that I'll actually travel for research directly. Like I, I'll go, hey, I'm sitting this story in Paris, and I fly to Paris, run around Paris, fly back and write about it. Usually, it's just I travel um, and I gather notes, I take pictures, I journal, I walk up to people in towns and say, hey, tell me something uh, about your village that nobody knows about. And maybe because of the anonymity of that, they'll oftentimes tell you things that are quite surprising. And oftentimes become what they tell me becomes part of the story. My last novel, for example, uh, was a book called Crucible. And I was in Spain several years ago. And I walked up to somebody in a little village in in northern Spain. I said, hey, you know, tell me something that nobody knows about this place. Tell me a secret about your town. And she goes, here, follow me. And so I did. I think, well, she's going to mug me. And she takes me to this this uh, this little house and has and there's like a, a brand in this door, this mark that's branded into this wooden door. And she goes, see this mark here? This is the mark for the, uh, the cruciboum. And I said, what's the cruciboum? And she says, well, you know, everybody believes that the uh, Spanish Inquisition uh, ended. But there is a, a, you know, here in Spain, we believe that there is a secret sect uh, the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition that's still functioning today. And it's called the Crucibellum. And they, they, they leave marks around uh, Spain indicating uh, activity. So, you know, when the internet looking for them, I could barely find any reference to them at all, but there are a few of them out there. But, you know, how fascinating is that, that there's a secret sect of the Spanish Inquisition that's maybe still uh, alive. And that, that little tidbit became the uh, the crux of my novel, The Crucible, from uh, from last year. That's pretty neat. Yeah, because because I kind of figured with it, 
with your books taking place in different parts of the world and so forth that, you know, there would, there would be a little bit of, uh, I guess, uh, real feeling and, 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 uh, sight and so forth into the places that you're writing about. Um, and that you would maybe have some kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, special interest into certain stories that, that you end up writing about and that, and that kind of answered my question. So that, that's pretty neat that, 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 uh, influenced your book so much. Um, so, so the last Odyssey. So this is actually coming out in in seven days. So next Tuesday, yep. actually it's next Monday, because um, it's, it's actually coming out on the twenty third, I believe, instead of the twenty fourth. Is that right? Uh, no, it's coming out on the twenty fourth. It's twenty fourth. Okay, because I've yeah. seen I've seen mixed mixed days on a couple of different websites. But we're we were going to sign just because of the time schedule with the um, tour. I was going to do like a a pre early event on Monday at the poison pen. Oh, okay. Okay. And the reason why I've been signing books out there is that they have a big, a big stock because they were anticipating that. So I'm trying to uh, make sure that I'm not leaving them in the lurch. I gotcha. Okay. So this is uh this is book 15, your best selling Sigma four series. Uh, and it'll hit, like I said, hit shelves next week. So yep. it's uh, the first novel of yours that I've actually read. And, and, but I can officially say after reading and I'm a huge fan now. Um, <laughs> And so, and I've already got the other 14 lined up and ready to go in audiobooks. So I'm definitely going to be getting to those really shortly, especially now with being able to work at home, it's just going to be playing. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about, uh, or tell the audience a little bit about what they can expect from, uh, from this dive in the Sigma Force series? Sure. Uh, well, Sigma, again, I appreciate you mentioning that you just jumped in. Most people don't read my series in order. They just jump in wherever they happen to encounter the books. I structure each book as well as I can. So that uh, whatever backstory you need with the characters, I will seed into the novel so you're not feeling totally lost, uh, even though we're on the 15th book in a series. Uh, I, don't, I think there's very few people that have read my series in order. But in this book, uh, it starts out with the discovery of a, uh, a medieval ship that's uh, buried about half a mile under the ice of Greenland. Because of the melting that's occurring there, a melt channel opens up. A team of a group of scientists discover this, uh, this ancient ship buried in the ice and there are some mysterious artifacts within the hold of that ship that date back to the bronze age so some other researchers are called in to investigate it uh, they discover a, a, a golden atlas in the captain's quarters that has a silver astrolabe a navigational tool embedded in it and it seems to be pointing towards what they believe to be the gateway to hell or tartarus and ancient greek mythology my dogs, if you hear them in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's at the door. Um, so they, uh, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose literally in this, as, as this uh, is discovered. And it's up to Sigma Force to find out, you know, what was buried there, why was it buried there. And it ties back to Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And it's a big adventure that spans from one side of the Mediterranean to the other and leaves Sigma Force having to cross through the gates of hell in order to save the world. Yeah, and uh, you definitely dive into, I guess, a lot of like historical fiction and even legit history and Greek mythology, kind of uh, while you're telling this grand story uh, across the 464 pages that it is. Um, and I and I really like in my review that I wrote today, I felt that you went from zero to sixty like super quick, and you just never let off the accelerator. I mean, it just continues and continues all the way to the end. Well, thank you very much. I mean, my goal. I always tell people my goal when I write uh, is to, to build a roller coaster that I'm going to send my readers through. 
you know, I want it to be a big adventure. I want to, you know, I want the heart pumping, you know, sweat on the brow as you're reading. But hopefully when we're done with the novel, you know, I've hopefully raised some subjects that maybe are intriguing. So I have sort of a what's true, what's not section where I sort of pull aside the curtain, explain you know, how much is real, how much isn't, and leave some breadcrumbs to follow if there's any topics that interest you. Because think any good book, you know, hopefully there's at least a little resonance, a resonance that something gives you something to think about, maybe pursue any interest or curiosity you have from there. Uh, so that that to me is the books that really work well is the books that, that do that. You know, a common, I guess, I hate the word theme. I, it sends a shiver up my spine from my, my English days. But, you know, probably one of the things that, that's common in a lot of my Sigma novels is you know, looking for that seed of truth behind a myth or a story. Mm-hmm is, you know, for the longest period of time, everybody thought the city of Troy was a mythic place. They thought it was just a, a city made up by Homer in the, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it wasn't a real place. And that held true all the way until the late 19th century when an amateur archaeologist, Heinrich uh, Schliemann, discovered, or from following clues in, in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, he believed, you know, where he thought Troy was located, and he dug into a hill on the coast of Turkey and discovered some runes there. And about a decade later, they're confirmed that those were indeed uh, the uh, runes of Troy. So within a second, you know, myth became history. And, you know, again, me being a fiction writer, I'm always wondering, you know, in this story of Homer's Illid and the Odyssey that has, you know, gods and monsters and curses and, and witches, uh, you know, how much else is buried and how much else, how much, what else is true in that story? How much, whatever truths are buried behind that mythology? And that became sort of the, the crux of, of writing this novel is trying to peel back uh, the myth and look for the, the truth behind there. I gotcha. So, um, and you kind of answered this a little bit, but, you know, since I haven't read the others in the series, uh, you know, did you write each one with the intention of being able to make it a standalone uh, while also, uh, you know, being a set of books you can follow along from book one, to book 15, or was that just something that just kind of happened? <laughs> you know, I think it goes back to, you know, reading books like, you know, with Clive Custler. Again, with Clive Custler's books, you don't have to read the Dirk Pitt adventures in order. You could hop in and out whenever you want. And I think that's important that you don't uh, so belabor your series that everybody has to read them in order to, to follow it. Um, I always appreciate when I'm, you know, an author generally comes out with a book a year. And if you have to know the, the, you know, the nitty gritty of what's happened in prior books to follow the current book, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've read a lot of epic fantasy books where they don't do that. And it, sometimes you have to go back and reread the earlier books to even be able to read the current book. I mean, I'm, let's say Dan, uh, George R. R. Martin, you know, writes the, the Winds of Winter at some point actually get published. I will have to reread the entire series. I don't remember it in great enough detail to be able to follow it. So I always sort of don't like that one. Uh, I don't want to have to be obligated to reread the entire series. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I definitely structured it so that uh, each story is welcoming in and of itself, but definitely if you read them in order, there is a, uh, a a nuance and growth of characters that uh, you'll appreciate better uh, as you read in order. Like the very first book in the series map of bones you know, very early, I'm not ruining anything that happens in the first couple of chapters, is that uh, Commander Gray Pierce, the sort of the team leader of Sigma, has an encounter with an assassin named Seishan. They end up shooting each other, and their just nemesis is 
that's the plural of nemesis. I'm not quite sure. Uh, throughout the, the first few books in the series, but you know, as you read in the last Odyssey, you know, now they're they're married and they they're dealing with the fact that they have a six month old child. So it's sort of fun to look at the arc of a character over the course of a series uh, because there's only so much you can accomplish within one novel. Uh, so it's fun to, just to see how these characters are balancing the changes in their life uh, over the course of a series. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I know a lot of people kind of say that about, you know, George R. R. Martin's series and then it's uh, like Patrick Rothfuss's series because people yep. have just been waiting, you know, a decade for the book, which, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt because, they want to perfect it and get it out there and give you the best thing that they can potentially, you know, publish. But yeah, at the same time, yeah, you're, you're sitting there going, I'm going to have to reread these again. <laughs> and luckily that, you know, George R. R. Martin's only, you know, got what, five or six, six now. And then, uh, and Ross has only got two. So at least with Ross's, you're like, all right, I got, you know, a couple of days worth of reading I go through, but man, if you had to do, you know, 14 books, <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. Exactly. I'm actually rereading uh, Name of the Wind just because I, I've been pushing off holding reading. Uh, I can't remember the name of the second one, the, the Wise One or something like that, the second book in the series. Yeah. Um, so because I was waiting for the third one to come out before I, I jumped right in, but I, I'm impatient. So I'm finally breaking down and rereading Name of Name of the Wind before I read the next one. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, some people have been waiting for uh, like the Gentleman Bastards books by Scott Lynch. They're waiting for the fourth one. I think they've been waiting for Thorns of Vermilane forever, which it's a series I haven't gotten to. And I know they just like re-released the audiobooks and stuff. So I guess it's like kind of starting to snowball into it. But I'm like, you know, I want to read it, but I'm like, I'd rather it be finished at this point because I'm already behind. <laughs> so I a, a little funny story. I was in uh, in the Netherlands, my 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 Netherlands publisher invited me out to go to the, uh, the Elf Fantasy Fair uh, to promote a fantasy book I had written. And I had just read the um, an arc of Name of the Wind. And he was asking me, you know, you know you're know, you from America. You know, do you know any books that are coming out that, you know, we might be interested up here that might be, you know, good for us to pick up? I said, you know, I just read this, you know, Name of the Wind. I really enjoyed it. It was a really great, great book. And, and it's written. He said, "Well, who wrote it?" There's a guy named Patrick Rothfuss. And he looks at me and goes, "I oh, know I can't. I can't publish that." I mean, what do you mean? So in Danish, Rothfuss means rotten fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure we've gotten around to it. I wager. Right, right. I'm sure. <laughs> I was discounting that idea of mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, obviously, with this book coming out next week. Uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on another maybe novella? Are you working on something separate from Sigma Force? Or are you writing the next book in the in the series? I I, I have a, a anthology series coming anthology coming out in, in September uh, that features a lot of my uh, over the last you know twenty years of my writing I've written a lot of short fictions so will be and they're you know spread across a whole different types of media and and. And uh, some anthologies here and ebook editions. Anyways, they're putting them all together. I'm also doing new introductions to each of the stories. So using almost the stories as a way of sort of telling how I became a writer and why I became a writer uh, by using each story to say, you know, why I wrote this and how I came up with the idea. But also I didn't want to just sell you old stuff. So the anthology includes a hundred page uh, new novella featuring a pair of characters. Uh, it's a military former ranger name of uh, captain uh, tucker wayne and his military war dog kane uh so that'll be a new adventure featuring that, that pair of characters in that anthology 
But right now I'm, I'm just finishing up next year's Sigma novel. Uh, it's called The Savage Zone. And oddly enough, it deals with viruses. So talk about <laughs> weird, weird timing. So that's just about finished. It's not a pandemic book. It's a book uh, that looks into a different aspect of telling a virology story. It looks at you know the evolution of history of viruses, You know why they're so prevalent, why killer viruses pop up all the time, oddly enough. And uh, so it's a big uh, sort of an evolutionary biology story tied to uh, viruses and how they interact with us and with the rest of the natural world. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, if you had released the virus book, you know, next week, then people would probably be kind of looking at you a little different. <laughs> well, editor was, you know, she said, you know, send me an email after this all broke out. She says, Jim, is there something you knew that we didn't know about? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people were saying that Dean Koontz had called it, you know, years ago as well, one of his novels, because he talked about, you know, 2020, there being this epidemic and all of a sudden, oh, I've, I've seen, yeah, I've been seeing it kind of like circling around on social media, so... All right. So, uh, is there anything that you've had a chance to read lately that maybe you'd recommend to the audience? I know uh, you're super busy, especially here recently with uh, interviews and and getting you know publicity and marketing going for the book. But have you actually had a chance to read anything? You know, I uh, I, I read uh, uh, Granny's new book, One Minute Out. Uh, it came out a couple of weeks ago. Again, just uh, I like Mark uh, mostly because I have a personal connection to him he took one of he took who was a back oh gosh maybe 10 years ago 12 years ago he uh, took a writer's retreat class with mine that i was teaching writing at uh so i've been following his career ever since so i feel like uh uh somewhat responsible for his career so <laughs> one minute out it's a great adventure it's a non-stop it's a i i, I gave him a blurb for the first book i call it you know james james born i mean it's a born born for the new millennium uh, it's just, a, it's, a, it's an exciting read. Okay. Um, okay. So I have to know, so during your veterinarian career, which I know it's still kind of ongoing, but during your career, what is the craziest thing that's ever happened at the vet? With a dog? Or Did, any animal? Uh, you know, part of my career was also, uh, even though I didn't do large animal, I, you know, I was trained in large animals. Um, so probably the, the oddest thing was I always told people, you know, if you can get, your your animal through my front door i'll see it so one day somebody took up that challenge they walked through my front door of my small animal clinic with a horse so you know my, my veterinary clinic was about maybe 2,000 square feet so the, my lobby was maybe the size of a uh, a one-car garage so to you know to see this stallion come walking in was a it was a different day yeah yeah I mean, were they able actually to get in front of the in, in the door? Do you did you have double doors? To they got, they got through the door and all the way into the. I thought, so you got through the front door, now you got to get into the exam room, and and they did, they did. So <laughs> I I went ahead and I I treated their treated their horse. Wow, that's impressive. Um, well, guys, everybody that's listening, um, you can find James on social media. You can find him on Twitter at James Rollins. You can find him on Instagram at author James Rollins and his Facebook page at uh, at Sigma Force. You can also yep. find his website at jamesrollins.com. And again, The Last Odyssey will be dropping next Tuesday, the 24th. And uh, if you need some more information about that, you can check out our review on fanfightaddict.com. Uh, but again, James, uh, really appreciate you being here, taking the time to, to come chat with me on the podcast. And uh, it's just been an amazing experience uh, with this last 30 minutes. And uh, again, your book was phenomenal. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to more. 
Thanks, Terry. I appreciate that. Appreciate all the support. Absolutely. And uh, let's maybe let's try to do this again for uh, for the next book next year. That'd be great. Excellent. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your night and uh, stay safe out there. All right, you too. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed my quick chat with author James Rollins. Definitely check out the last Odyssey. Actually, it was my most recent read, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Especially if you love big thrilling adventures with mythology and history and big friggin' monsters and shootouts and all kinds of good stuff. But um, it's definitely one to read. Uh, and again, you don't have to have any prior knowledge of the Sigma Force series to uh, get into it and really enjoy it. But that comes out next Tuesday, the 24th. Um, but guys, I actually just added another guest on this Thursday, the 19th. I'm actually going to be talking to horror writer Adam Cesare. He actually just well, actually, I can't say he just released it. He won't be released until August, but I actually just finished uh, his upcoming YA horror debut from Harper Teen called Clown in a Cornfield. Um, I know YA turns a lot of people off when you say it, but this is an absolutely fantastic novel, um, especially if you know you kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s with the good slasher films. You know, If you're a big fan of Halloween or you know Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the 13th, any of those great horror flicks, uh, this is definitely one to look out for. I expect it to definitely be a movie in the coming years. Um, it's just a great read. But he'll be on on Thursday, so that episode will drop on Friday. And then next week, I've got Dan Stout, author of Titan Shade, and Anna Smith-Spark, author of the Empires of Dust series. But guys, just thanks, as always, for tuning in. Stay safe out there, and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at dwalters29. Thanks. 